2: Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously
0: peer inside the box of oddities. Where has this year gone? I just realized that our lease is up in like four and a half months. Mm. Where should we go?
1: No, I mean, we're, we're definitely not staying here, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> hey, if you guys have any suggestions of where we should move, <laughs> let us know. We're open to all kinds of suggestions. We've actually talked at great length over the years about moving to Ecuador. Maybe now's the time. Should we move to Ecuador?
1: I love their soup so much.
0: <laughs> well, there it is. Based on soup alone, <laughs> we've decided to make an international jump in residency. <laughs>
1: that's not true. We haven't decided no, anything. We don't know. Uh, we, that's, the funny thing is actually we don't know where we're going to be living in in less than five months.
0: Right. It's kind of like I feel untethered by that. It is a very weird feeling. Yeah, we need to make a decision. Got this email from Jessica. Hey, Cat and Jethro, really enjoyed JG's last episode about strange presidential facts. Yes. I love it when you guys give us bite-sized chunks of knowledge because I can amuse my friends at work with them. Of course you can. Please do more on lots of different topics. Well, your wish is my command. Here are some bite-sized nuggets of weird, bizarre information that you can amaze and amuse your friends with if they're not very bright. This is actually one that I came across in researching the previous episode. I didn't include this. Uh, it's about Abe Lincoln. Uh, when uh, I'm going to do lots of different topics, not more presidential stuff, but I thought I'd lead with this one because I just ran out of space on the last episode. When you see Abraham Lincoln portrayed in a, in a movie or you look at pictures of him, um, you always picture his voice as a very calming, resonant voice, he would speak with a deliberate firmness, but uh, historical documents and letters, as well as news articles from his day, written by people that knew Lincoln, contradict that. Oh? I think of Daniel day Lewis's portrayal of, of Lincoln. Yeah. That.
1: Well, that's the power of Daniel Day-Lewis. He somehow has the ability to create a character so vibrant and believable that from then on that that person is only daniel day lewis's interpretation of them
0: (laughs) well there was a journalist uh who knew lincoln his name was horace white he knew lincoln well and he described lincoln's voice as quote a thin tenor or rather falsetto voice almost as high pitched as a whistle
1: that makes sense because he was so tall
0: tall and thin yeah so
1: his voice got thin as it moved its way
0: through his (laughs) tall
1: body. I don't know the science of it.
0: In February of 1860, an article in the New York Herald uh, described Lincoln's voice as, quote, shrill. The article was quoted as saying Lincoln had a, quote, frequent tendency to dwindle into a shrill and unpleasant sound. (laughs) Yet history still regards Lincoln as one of the most powerful public speakers in history. So that that tells you a lot about the words and the emotions behind the words of yeah. what he was, uh, he was saying. Now, you're familiar with uh, Van Gogh's painting, Café Terrace at Night, right? Of course. It's an unsigned work by Vincent, but it's accepted as a genuine piece of his work. And he did mention working on it when he would write letters to his brother, Theo, while he was living in Arles, France. Now, Van Gogh mentioned in these letters and correspondence how he was paying particularly close attention to the stars that he painted in the sky. He mm-hmm. wanted to portray them as accurately as he could. And because of that, we can precisely date when he painted this piece of art based on the position of the stars in his painting. Oh, that's cool. According to art historian Albert Boime. The location of the constellation Aquarius that Van Gogh depicted in his painting shows that he created this work of art probably the first two weeks of September, 1888, at about 11 o'clock at night.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: That blows my mind.
1: I'm looking at it right now.
0: It's beautiful. It
1: is so gorgeous.
0: Next nugget of interesting information that you can amuse and amaze your friends with, the discovery of citrus As a cure for scurvy, directly led to the creation of the Sicilian Mafia.
1: What? (laughs) Yeah. What?
0: Yeah. Scurvy, of course, was a huge problem for about 300 years leading up to the early 1800s. We don't know what caused this plague at the time, and it's estimated to have killed two million sailors. In 1747, a British doctor named James Lind was part of the HMS Salisbury crew when they were shipped out to the Mediterranean. Now, during this trip, several dozen members of the crew developed scurvy. And this led to the first clinical trial of treatments for this plague. He conducted them on the ship. And in his research, he used lemons and oranges. His conclusion was that there was some type of mysterious element in citrus that could cure scurvy. And although it met with a high degree of skepticism within the uh, medical community at the time. Right.
1: Because (laughs) it's probably something more like you've got ghosts in your
0: blood. Right. Yes. By 1790, the British fleet had adopted some regulations that required all of their seagoing vessels to carry large supplies of lemon juice. Um, Or some sort of citrus, some form of citrus on board the ships. Right. Most of the citrus at the time came from the island of Sicily. And to demonstrate what a huge economic boon this was for that small island, in 1815, Sicily exported about 740 barrels of lemon juice. But by the 1850s, it was three quarters of a million barrels Whoa! and an additional two and a half million crates of citrus fruit. So it was huge money for that little island. At the same time as the economy was booming in Sicily, Italy had taken control of Sicily from the House of Bourbon. And this happened in 1861. And because the government was newly minted in Sicily, it was really too weak to enforce laws. Mm -hmm. And so citrus growers hired known criminals and crooks to protect their property. And speculation is that over time, these crop protecting crooks uh, unified. And this led to the rise of an organization that was later called the Sicilian Mafia. Oh, my gosh.
1: I love that whole unintended consequences thing. You know, the butterfly effect, if you
0: will. It was a great documentary i think it was on the discovery channel years ago called connections and and that's what it was it would show you the direct unbroken connection between the invention of the loom to modern day computers
1: that's so cool i
0: love that stuff
1: are you getting ready to move on to your next yes uh, tidbit i am yes before you do that would you get me some socks
0: cats barricaded into the corner of our recording studio and she doesn't want to disturb the dog
1: Also, I just saw a man outside, and I got so excited because I thought he had a dog with him. But it's just a dumb
0: baby. <laughs> there you go.
1: Thank you. Aw, oh, these aren't my favorite.
0: They're not my favorite either. That's why I got them for you.
1: <gasps> okay, Tid bit me up.
0: Remember right. that video? <laughs> <So> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that video that we saw uh, of a wedding that John Bon Jovi was attending? He was just there as somebody attending the wedding. He wasn't there for any other reason. Uh-huh. Just going to a wedding.
1: Yes. Even even John Bovi needs to go to weddings. John
0: Bovi, uh, and the wedding singer broke into a karaoke version of "Living on a Prayer." Remember this? Oh,
1: yeah. And he started singing with him.
0: Well, he just kind of smiled and ignored it at first. But you could tell by the look on his face, he knew what was expected. Mm-hmm. He just kind of nodding along. But the wedding singer wouldn't give up and walked over to his table. And he just kind of resigned himself to singing it. He took the mic and he did a, a chorus of living on the. Pro- it was so cringy and I felt so bad for him. Yeah. Apparently, Kevin Bacon runs into the same problem when he goes to weddings. What do they want Kevin Bacon to sing? They don't want him to sing. They want him to dance. Inevitably, the wedding DJ will put on Footloose, and everybody will look at him and expect him to get up and and (sighs) do his Footloose dance.
1: Kevin Bacon's not a clown, guys.
0: On a clip from the Conan O'Brien show, Kevin Bacon said, quote, I go to the disc jockey and I hand him 20 and I say, please don't play that song. (laughs) Because first off, a wedding is really not about it's not about me. It's about the bride and the groom. It's embarrassing. It's awful. I mean, it's awful. The bride's over there and she's like she's upset because it's it's her wedding. Anyway, I try to avoid that if possible. So Kevin Bacon pays off wedding DJs not to play Footloose. Next interesting tidbit, (laughs) fraternal organizations, obviously not a new thing. No. They go back millennia. But in the late 19th century, there was a craze of a particular type of organization that for some reason just all, they they popped up all over the U.S. and, uh, and other countries as well, totally unrelated, but all at the same time. It was strange. They were called fat men clubs. The first Fat Man Club is believed to have been founded in New York City in 1869, but it certainly wasn't the only one. There was the uh the Jolly Fat Man's Club, the Fat Man's Association of New York City, the United Association of Heavy Men in New York State, and the Fat Men's Beneficial Association.
1: And this was just Overweight men getting together?
0: The requirements were you had to be fat, a man, and rich.
1: Were there guidelines on how fat was fat enough?
0: 200 pounds minimum.
1: Oh, wow. That's not fat at all. (laughs) (laughs) No,
0: not not by today's standards, for sure. Bear in mind, in the late uh, 1800s, being overweight was seen as a good thing. It It was a status symbol. It meant that you were wealthy and you were powerful and you could afford to overeat. So it was an exclusive club to be in. At the time,
1: mm. let's also keep in mind that a lot of the things that you said are based in yeah. misnomers about obesity. Yes. Okay, right. yeah. yeah, from yeah. from a
0: hundred and you know fifty <laughs> years ago. Right, their meetings garnered all sorts of media attention. From an eighteen eighty five New York Times article, we get a, a bit of a glimpse of what happened at these gatherings. They would uh, compete to see who was the heaviest. In that article from 1885, it was determined that the Connecticut Fat Man's Club had a member over 300 pounds, and the leanest member of their club at the time was 243. By 1903, Fat Man's Clubs were just all the rage, and a guy named Jeremy Hale founded the New England Fat Man's Club. Their motto was, quote, we're fat and we're making the most of it. They even had a secret handshake.
1: Did it involve, like, their tummies? Or? I, no,
0: I don't know what it was. It's been, oh. it's been lost to history. It's, okay,
1: it's still secret.
0: It's still secret, it. yeah. They had meetings twice a year. The 1904 meeting was uh, covered extensively by the media for some reason. Hundreds of members came to the meeting. It cost just $1 to attend. Oh my! It included contests of stamina and strength combined with a constant flow of hearty feasting.
1: This sounds like a party I want to be invited to. (laughs) I mean, except for it being all dudes. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah.
0: The article went on to say that some problems did arise during some of the strength and stamina competitions. For example, the tug of war, um, they had to replace the rope with a chain because the rope snapped and the pole vaulting competition was canceled for obvious reasons. The Fat Man's Club of New England was active and held meetings... For more than 10 years, at the height of its popularity, they had over 10,000 members. Wow. And they each had to weigh in before the meetings. If they clocked in under 200 pounds, they couldn't get in. By 1910, the general attitude uh, in the United States about obesity began to change. It had a negative connotation in relation to one's health, and membership in the Fat Man's Club began to plummet. Boo. By the end of 1924 in the New England Fat Man's Club, and again, they had a a high mark of like 10,000 members. By 1924, they had 38 members left, and none of them made the 200-pound weight limit. So I guess they eased the rules. So you like Brussels sprouts?
1: I love Brussels sprouts.
0: But the Brussels sprouts we eat today are not the same as they were. In the 1990s, they were genetically engineered to be more flavorful. Originally, Brussels, Brussels sprouts had a very bitter taste, and they also um, didn't smell good when you cooked them. Mm-hmm. They became popular uh, in the 1600s. Well, actually, no, the 16th century in Belgium, and they weren't imported to the U.S. until the 1800s, early 1800s, but did not become popular until World War II. The bitter taste, the strong smell, it, it, it kept the popularity of the vegetable in check, until the 1990s, when a Dutch scientist named Hans van Doom isolated the chemicals in uh, the vegetables that caused it to taste so bitter. And I guess it took several years, but he was able to genetically engineer Brussels sprouts to taste well, as you would expect them to today.
1: Well, thank you, Hans. I love Brussels sprouts.
0: And since he did that, the popularity of Brussels sprouts have exploded, especially in the U.S. Now you really can go anywhere and they serve some sort of uh, Brussels sprout appetizer. You didn't see that too much before. No. <laughs> the 1990s. My source information: CNN, Ranker, and Wikipedia.
1: Interesting stuff, sweetie.
0: And now that thing in the middle. Fahrenheit 451 was written by Ray Bradbury and published in 1953. It became a critical success, winning many awards, including the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. It also ranked number seven on the New York Public Library's list of most checked out books ever. It's thought of by many as a science fiction masterpiece. But did you know that Ray Bradbury wrote the first draft on a rented typewriter in the basement of the UCLA library in just nine days? Dearest, loveliest cat in Jethro, Cat's story this morning brought tears to my eyes. My family is from Poland, Warsaw. Oh, this is Mm. about, yeah, that was a very intense story. I am first generation American. I grew up with stories of my family's heroism during World War II, although they also reject that title. My great-aunt, on my father's side, worked with Zagoda and contributed to the wow. rescue of countless Jewish children from the, from the ghetto. She was tragically caught while trying to smuggle a child and was fatally shot on the street oh my gosh. while resisting the arresting officers. A few of my more distant relatives also worked for the organization and were caught and sent to Breslau Concentration Camp, where their fate is unknown, but I believe they ultimately lost their lives. My grandmother on my mother's side had blonde hair and blue eyes. Her features often garnered favoritism and affection from the German SS officers. As a 10-year-old child, she was employed to smuggle paperwork for dissenting organizations on the tramway across wow. the city. Wow. She is still alive and well today.
1: Unreal.
0: Although I don't get to travel to visit as often as when I was a younger, when I was younger, despite the sad outcome for many of my family members, I am very proud to descend from such brave people. I like to think I would act honorably given the same circumstances, but it's difficult to imagine. Thank you for bringing attention to Irene's cause. Wishing you the best, Milo.
1: We got a message from Alexina on Instagram. Hi Kat, I just finished box 516 and I'm typing to you through tears. My family is the only Jewish family in our small community. We are proud of who we are and our ancestors. Over the last year, my kids, particularly my oldest son, who's 14, have been the target of anti-Semitic abuse at school. They don't understand why there's so much hatred toward our people, and no amount of explaining history to them can answer that. The truth is, there is no answer. I wanted to thank you for sharing stories like Irina Sendler's. These are the conversations I want to have with my kids. The heroes, the defenders, the goodness in humanity.
0: Wow, what do you say to... Th- correspondence like that i mean how
1: i wrote back that one i'm sorry to hear this because uh, you know you know it's absolutely heartbreaking that Mm -hmm. any kid should have to go through that Um, and stories like this one remind us how so many would do whatever it takes to keep your kid safe and that's you know it's important to keep in mind also, I got a bunch of messages about birds.
0: Well, that's not uncommon.
1: So that was nice. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this or not, but recently I went to Thailand.
0: I heard about that. Ah! <laughs> oh, yeah, I was there with you. Yeah,
1: it was incredible, and everything was amazing. And that was something that I kept saying. Like, we would be walking through the street, and I'd be like, everything is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelming at times, but there was so much uh, to see and do and learn and absorb, and there's no way we even got a smidgen of it done.
0: And we were there nearly three weeks.
1: So we've got to go back. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about were ghosts of Thailand. We're talking the spooky stuff, we're talking the folklore of the place where I recently was, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Have you ever heard of a Akrasu? No. Okay, the Krasu is a female spirit of Southeast Asian folklore, and her name changes from region to region. It's Kasu in Laos, it's Laek in Indonesian, Malay in Vietnamese, and among others. The spirit presents... Only at night, as a floating head with her internal organs hanging down from her neck.
0: Oh, gross.
1: She hovers above the ground with her organs dangling below. And the organs vary from depiction to depiction, but oft will include a heart, a stomach, and an intestinal tract, sometimes lungs. She's usually described as glowing ever so slightly, and when spotted, will often have her most recent victim's blood still on her innards that are actually her outers now. I guess. um, And on her very, very sharp pointed teeth.
0: God, that's horrifying.
1: The Krasu is under a curse that makes it insatiably hungry and therefore always hunting. You'll see the glow first, then the floating head moving toward you, seeking blood to drink or flesh to devour. Legend says that if she's unable to find humans to consume, she might attack cattle or chickens in the darkness, drinking their blood and eating their internal organs. Well, that
0: explains cattle mutilations. Right, right there. In my mind as you describe it you know the head floating mm-hmm. and bobbing about and then the uh, innards all dangling from from the head yeah I'm picturing her moving around like a jellyfish
1: it's kind of jellyfishish fishish now belief in the existence of the crossu is shared amongst many cultures uh, so its origin is difficult to verify. One story comes from the Angkorian Khmer culture. It tells of a Khmer princess who was meant to marry a Siamese nobleman after her people were defeated in war. But she was in love with another man, one lower of of stature or status stature. He wasn't short. He was poor.
0: Well, you don't know how tall he was.
1: It's true. I can't know. She was eventually caught with her lover and was sentenced to death by burning by the Siamese nobleman because he wanted to marry her um, and he found out she loved someone else so burn her obviously
0: Mm -hmm. that's the logical conclusion
1: before the execution the princess had a spell cast over her so her body would be unharmed by the fire but the effect of the spell was delayed so the princess burned only until her internal organs and her head were left and so she continued to live as the krasu in thailand the Krasu is believed to be the cursed individual, usually a female, who engaged in various sins and fraudulent conducts during her previous life. Again, almost all folklore goes back to like moral lessons. After death, she appears to live as a normal person by day, but then at night, that's when her head detaches from her body and she and her dragging innards roam around looking for pregnant people or babies to eat.
0: Huh. Can you imagine meeting her like uh, at a bar? (laughs) Like at happy hour. And you're like, hey, is this going really well? And you guys end up uh, back at at one of your apartments Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you're in bed and then all of a sudden you realize uh, I'm sleeping with a head and entrails. Yeah, that'd be really disconcerting, I think.
1: One thing specific to Thailand that I found is that they believe after she's eaten, she'll wipe her bloody mouth on clothes hanging outside, um, which is why Thai people never leave things out overnight.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Well, who
1: needs that? Nobody.
0: On top of the threat of being consumed. Don't soil my linens with your ill-gotten blood.
1: PM is a ghost who is said to sit on the chests of people whilst they sleep. Oh, yeah. Causing discomfort and even death. So, if you're having trouble breathing or if you find that you're ab- unable to move while you're in bed, it's said that that is the doing of PM. They are the cause of sleep paralysis. In fact, the term P.M. is also used in medical forums to describe sleep paralysis. Interesting. So how do you combat P. or P.M.? Wear lipstick.
0: Okay. Now,
1: according to this, P.M. only attacks men and uh, also has some pretty outdated beliefs on makeup and apparently gets confused easily. (laughs) So they won't attack you if you wear lipstick to bed.
0: I touched on that in a previous episode where uh, it's believed that wearing makeup Mm. in some parts of Southeast Asia, it's believed to um, ward off demons.
1: Yeah. Keep you safe from ghosts. Yeah. But I think that's just, I don't know, looking for trouble. Because if you're always wearing makeup, then, you know, one day you don't put your face on and your spouse is like, who are you in my house Mm -hmm. and why are you so pale
0: it appears as though you're possessed by some demonic force
1: yeah turns out i'm just out of tinted moisturizer
0: Mm, it happens
1: pecan koi now pecan koi is an interesting ghost as they are one-legged and they have a they um, also uh, allegedly have a very large nose, but that's they repeat, Kong koi, while hopping around on their one foot. Now, this f- comes from Wikipedia, and I thought it was amazingly written. Their appearance is not easily characterized, but often described as a phantom with one leg. Some people believe it has a fly-like tube mouth. Others describe it as looking like a monkey. Ooh. Most agree this ghost is ugly, and cannot climb trees.
0: No, of course not. It has one leg, <laughs> and I, I'm picturing that when, you know with the fly-like tube mouth. Yeah. That's horrifying, right? But at the same time, it's got one leg. It'd mm-hmm. be easy to knock over.
1: Maybe it, because it's phantomy, can it just be a floaty guy? Ooh, yeah. God, I think is... that's the way it is. The thing about Conkoy is that. He hangs out in forests, and he will suck the blood from toes of campers who are sleeping.
0: Camper toe bloodsucker. Yeah,
1: so it's advised that you cross your legs while you sleep or make sure that your feet are completely covered if you're planning on sleeping beneath the stars. Now, what's interesting is pecan koi In the faith of the Tai Dam people in the Nong Sung district, they believe that the Pekong Khoi is actually a long-haired, very small or childlike woman with a backwards foot. And in September of 2016, strange footprints were found at a cave in a forest, and they are believed to be the footprints of Pekong Khoi.
0: One One of the footprints was backwards from the, oh, wow.
1: A director of a local cultural agency said that pecan koi are real and that they're an ethnic group who has not been seen for a long time. Oh,
0: shut up. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, obviously, we wouldn't want to associate those folklore ideas with a people that have been just living in the woods for a long time. So, hopefully, if they are a group of people and they are discovered living in the woods people don't assume that they're going to try to suck your toe blood that's true Peepop. pop it's been said that p-pop used to be a person with immense power and skill in sorcery
0: sounds like a nickname for a grandfather
1: <laughs> Peepop. pop yeah i'm
0: gonna go visit nini and p-pop yeah
1: i'm gonna go drive around in p-pop's truck that has Peepop written on the clear thing at the front of it the
0: bug yeah. guard yeah is that
1: what it's called yeah. Peepop's truck. Anyway, what was I saying? I don't know. Oh, yeah. So, Peepop used to be a person with immense power in sorcery, and they let that power go to their head, kind of like Willow in that episode uh-huh. of Buffy. Mm-hmm. So, this person committed a forbidden act, causing the black magic to backfire. The backfiring of their use of black magic is what turned them into a ghost. And now, as a ghost, they possess the bodies of humans and then consume them from the inside out, especially the intestines. Thai ghosts are big on intestines.
0: That's interesting. I wonder why that is. I mean, it certainly gross and paints a very vivid, horrific picture.
1: The peepops will move from person to person, especially if their host body is dying. And I would assume that would be from the lack of intestines that <laughs> you know they would be mm-hmm. dying. Um, but it uh, kind of it made me think of that movie Fallen with Denzel, you know, where they they go from body to body. Anyway, there you go. That's peepop, and there are many other ghosts of Thailand. I got my information from Culture Trip, from Penn State University blog titled All Things Asia, mm-hmm. from Pataya.com, Thailand Insider, and of course, I was, I was just there. Yeah. That's, so, that's I mean, I history. went there.
0: A special welcome and thanks to our newest patrons, Heather, Joseph, Hamill, and Neil Thanks for joining the Order of Freaks and supporting the podcast. If you would like to do the same, you get ad-free episodes and lots of different perks. Go to theboxofoddities.com.
1: And thank you so much.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
0: Fly it proudly, you beautiful, beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the
2: Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box On Facebook at Facebook.com Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.